I would like, if I may, to take you on a strange journey. You can do shit that most of us can only dream about. And you go around pretending it's just some trick. Who are you? Explorers in the further regions I experience. Demons to some, angels to others. How would you like to see the world the way it really is? You want to see flesh where the God lies. You must walk the line between heaven and hell. In nomine Dei Nostri Satanas Luciferi Excelsis. In the name of Satan, the ruler of the earth, the king of the world, I command the forces of darkness to bestow their infernal power upon us. Open wide the gates of hell and come forth from the abyss by these names. Satan. Illusions Lucifer, are trickery. Magicians do it for real. Welcome to a very special episode of Nine Cents. It is the Greater Magic episode. I've got a fantastic panel of ritualists here to join you. We have two friends of the show, Reverend Bill M. and Citizen Storm. Uh, Reverend Bill M., thank you so much for joining me. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you for having me. Citizen Storm, thank you for joining me. How are you? I am doing awesome. Thanks for uh, having me here in uh, your home studio. Oh, no, it's... Totally a pleasure on my part. Thank you both for joining me. Obviously, we're going to be talking about greater magic. We're going to be talking about theory and practice specifically. And I've received a number of questions from the audience of Nine Cents, and I've sent uh, both of you copies. I'm hoping that you can see those um, as we go through. And what I'd like to do is sort of a roundtable of sorts and to make sure that everyone has an opportunity to um, give their, uh, I'll say nine cents, but two cents, you know, um, then <laughs> well, I'll just I'll, I'll ask one person a question, and if anyone else has anything to add on to it, or and you know just just a personal experience with it, or anything like that, please feel free. Uh, let's let's keep this as uh, open as possible. Greater magic theory. We have such sights to show you. I want to first start with theory, and, and what I don't want to do is, is sort of go through, say, the 13 steps of the ritual, um, but I do want to touch on some general ideas here in theory. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's go at the very top here. Uh, this was a question that was sent in. What part can music play in a ritual, and how can it emotionally affect the participants toward a more effective working? Reverend Billum, do you want to field that one? Yeah, sure. Um, for me, personally... Uh, music is absolutely essential when I'm in the ritual chamber. Uh, one of the key things, I think, you know, what's key to most all rituals really is uh, the whole concept of the intellectual decompression chamber. You know, we are setting up this environment where it's purely emotional and not intellectual. You do all the thinking outside of the ritual chamber, and here's your chance to set up an event, an environment where 
you know you can focus on that and for me music uh, having you know specific pieces that I even set aside for certain rituals is uh, essential to that nice do you have any pieces that you feel are just like the go-to uh, pieces of music yeah there are certain things that I have that I um, I have some discs that I'll play during setup and then some things to play during certain rituals um, I think there's a certain esoteric uh, power to uh, having things that you only listen to in that setting, you know, and not casually. That's it's a n- nice little trick you can try using. So it it almost sounds like you have almost like I don't know if it's like like a mixtape or like you DJ the ritual or something. I mean, that's <laughs> that sounds pretty involved. Yeah, I mean, that's sort of what I do nowadays. Is I'll set up, you know, like a. You, Put the MP3s together in a playlist and make sure uh, make sure it's long enough so it doesn't you know stop the music doesn't end mid ritual. Yeah. Uh, that's uh, yeah, n- not a good thing when that happens. <laughs> Have I distracting had that happen? Yeah, yeah I, I've had plenty of uh, mishaps in the ritual chamber with little <laughs> things like that happening. But it's a whole other discussion. Uh, Storm, have you, do you have any sort of go to tunes for your ritualing? I think there's definitely a few that we alternate through. Uh, we're big fans of, uh, I, I think a lot of Midnight Syndicate will definitely go toward that. Um, I like the uh, La Rue de La Chaise stuff. I think that's often a good one that we like to go to. Um, or Nox Arcana, which I'm sure that those are all popular choices among a lot of Satanists. But I would say that any of that type of music tends to set set the mood for... Uh, you know, for the ritual that we're going to engage in. And I agree with Bill that uh, you, I, I think it's essential to have the music in there. There's definitely some evocative parts of music that uh, will bring forth a lot of the emotion and, uh, you know, a, a lot of the, uh, the mental focus that you're gonna, that's going to be required to have an effective working. I think that uh, music plays a big role in that. It still comes down to personal preference because I know at least one member who, for example, uh, refuses to use music at all in the ritual chamber because he just finds it distracting, just sort of the way his ear works where he wants to stop and analyze <laughs> a piece he's hearing. So. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Have either of you ever heard of anyone using um, non-ambient or non-classical music in the ritual chamber? Hmm. I- I've used some things myself um you know, depending on what uh, what it was I was doing, if there were certain songs that I had a personal association with to whatever it is that I was doing, um, you know, to Conjuration of Lust or Destruction, you know, certain songs like that would, would fit in, even if it was like a pop song. But if I had that strong association, then, you know, that's what counts. Yeah, absolutely. I, I have a hard time, I mean, just since you mentioned it, thinking of, like if I, I've never performed a lust ritual personally, um, and I've never like I couldn't imagine the type of music I would want for something like that. <laughs> Do you guys have any specific? Um, like, have either of you done a lust ritual before? Well, I've you know, I've done them a number of times. Uh, I remember doing one in particular where I was like you know picking um, some you know eighties hair metal stuff like that <laughs> just because that that had a big you know ECI, uh, you know as, as Levey would say. You were at a crystallization inertia in me associating that with, you know, my youth and losing virginity and all that stuff and trying to utilize that as best as I could to build up that, uh, you know, that emotion for that uh, specific ritual. 
Hell yeah. Are you, are you dare to tell us what song it was? Uh, I'm try- it was a bunch of like different songs. I had you know some things by L.A. Guns, some things by Motley Crue. Oh, nice. I don't know. Yeah, I think I would have. Now that I've been thinking about, it, we've been talking. I think White Snake would probably be the, <laughs> for me the one to connect. Yeah, I, I unashamedly, on a side note, saw them earlier this summer. I, I take no shame in still liking that kind of music. But, Hell yeah! But uh, yeah, I was actually kind of totally off topic, but I, I was uh, kind of a fan of their new album, to be honest. Yeah, I, I have it myself. So I, I, don't, I don't know if it really is so. Dis, you know, a distance from Greater Magic because uh, just the the whole concept of just going to a concert in general is almost, uh, you know, that can have its effect as being an intellectual decompression chamber of sorts when you're really, really into it and into the whole zone of it with thousands of other people raising your hands in the sign of the horns, you know, you never know. <laughs> That's absolutely true. Um, Storm, have you ever had an experience in a, a, a public arena where you maybe in retrospect would think that, wow, that really was a ritual moment. Well, I'm, I'm not sure that I have, um, that I, that I can think of off the top of my head. No, but I, uh, certainly felt the idea of, you know, of energy. If you, if you want to think of, of energy in the, uh, uh, the idea of, uh, the sort of essence, uh, that people could emit, then I've certainly felt it at large concerts because I've been to a couple of Ozfests and that sort of thing. And you can definitely, I mean, there's something that can be felt if you want to call it a vibe or whatever you want to call it. Um, I think that that sort of thing can be felt, but I can't say that I've necessarily felt anything that would be, uh, that, that made me think, wow, that would be something great for the ritual chamber. Um, maybe the closest to anything like that would have been my experience, uh, going to symphonies and that sort of thing. I, for, for me, uh, it's not so much the rock music, rock music or, or heavy metal. Cause I'm really into the, the, you know, outside of Ozzy, I mean, Rob Zombie kind of being in my top list, it goes right to the super heavy stuff like black metal. So when, when I'm at something like a satiricon show, I'm not really thinking about ritual chamber stuff. My, my mood and my, you know, my thoughts are somewhere completely else that, you know, it's, it's not really so much. Wow. That would be sure effective in the ritual chamber. Mm-hmm. See, and I would argue that that would, that would be a, a perfect example of, of a ritual situation where, where you, your mind isn't, you know, analyzing anything and, and you're just sort of in the moment. That's, that's a very ritual thing, right? I would say certainly so. Um, and we have to realize that's how most people, Satanists or not, usually get their ritualistic releases in situations like that, whether it's a, a concert or a sporting event or... It, you know, people are still at their core obsessed with symbolism and, you know, emotional expression through ritual. Yeah. Let me ask a question here. Um, I'm going to I'm going to direct this uh, to you, Storm. Um, and Bill, please feel free to, to add on to anything here um, as you see it. Do you think the COS believes that through the application of satanic ritual, the reality can change in accordance with the sorcerer's will? Or are the satanic rituals merely for the purpose of psychodrama? You know, that's something I've actually given a lot of thought to. And I do believe uh, on some level that that you can uh, move nature. And I don't mean uh, literally moving objects like a telekinesis kind of thing. But certainly, I, I mean, I believe in energies out there uh, in the sense that, uh, scientifically speaking, we are nothing but big fleshy balls of energy. And we are surrounded by 
more gaseous energy and other type, you know, all over the place. So yeah, I do believe on some level that we are connected to the things around us and there, there is something that happens. Um, I would not say that it's anything supernatural by any stretch of the imagination, but I have had success with the ritual chamber and things that happen outside that I wanted, that I desired and focused on that so intensely in the ritual chamber that maybe you know it it could have been something that lesser magic played a part into it that other things that once i'd cleared my mind and were able to focus on it that those uh things i desired did happen and did occur but on the same token i can't help but think that maybe it does go a little bit deeper than that but certainly there's a scientific explanation for it it's it's not something that's supernatural by any stretch of the imagination I think that's a good point, too, and it's sort of a position that uh, Satanists, we sort of take a third side to, um, whereas it seems everybody else, you know, you have the uh, occult dabblers who are like, oh, there's supernatural stuff going on, and on the other side, you have the hardcore skeptics saying, no, it's there's absolutely nothing supernatural, and all that's just completely useless. And I, you know, as a Satanist, I see it as I'm taking a third side of, well, it's not necessarily supernatural, but it's not completely useless either. And uh, getting back to the question of, you know, it, does uh, COS believe, um, can you apply satanic ritual and change your reality in, in accordance to your will? Yes. Um, of course, it does beg the, beg the question of what do you mean by, you know, wh- what reality are you changing, you know, and so forth. And, you know, that there's, uh, there's a lot of room open for interpretation of that. Yeah, and, and it is one of those questions that um, when I first saw it, I was like, wow, that's... Um it's a bit of a setup because there's a lot of perception yeah. involved with it. I mean, on one hand, and, and this is sort of, you know, one of those gray areas, as I understand it. And please, um, uh, Reverend Billem, if, if you can give us mm-hmm. a Church of Satan specific stance on it that I, I'm, I'm missing here. But it seems like there's sort of the implication, and as, as uh, Dr. LeVay often said that, yes, you can change um, reality um, that would not otherwise have been ch- paraphrasing there from the Satanic mm-hmm. Bible. Uh, but then there's also sort of the, this Church of Satan stance that I've heard um, in other avenues as well where it is very much a psychodrama. And so I think it it opens it and it leaves it open uh, to be a little bit confusing to maybe um, people who are uh, new or uninformed, you know, ignorant, ignorant to... Uh, Maybe not only the Church of Satan, but Satanism in general. Um, oh, and sure. it leaves a lot of room for that. Yeah, I mean, I've run across so many people who, you know, say are, are coming from the hardcore atheist perspective and, like, read a Satanic Bible and, or at least think they're reading it and skimming it and say, yeah, I, I you know, I, I like the philosophy, but I don't understand all this magic crap and I thought this was atheist and it's, like, okay, it's like you're jumping to conclusions <laughs> there. Um, you know, it doesn't, necessarily mean there is something inherently supernatural about it or there are supernatural claims um at the same time i think if you have to, if you feel you have to rationalize it with well it has to be scientifically explained explainable and everything then you're also kind of missing the point too um you know this is all about sort of a controlled uh, an emotional release and seeing your desires in the real world and you shouldn't feel it you have to rationalize it uh, you know with one explanation or another yeah, that's. I, mean, I would call, for for me, I would call it super normal. Yeah, that's a better term. I mean, because 
to me, and I'm, I'm sure I'm not the first person to say this, supernatural as a term just doesn't really make any sense because anything we do and experience in the real world is by definition part of nature. So, you know, if you experience it, then it's not super nature. It's nature. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, I just define it that way because I, I feel that uh, as much as people want to say normal you hear that all the time you know what what's normal and are we abnormal or whatever i i guess if i wanted to uh put a, a label on it i would say that the vast majority of satanists that uh i've known or associated with uh, be it online or in person we tend to be super normal you know we mm-hmm. we, def- we definitely tend to exceed uh a lot of the common standards, the common denominators that are out there. You you see Satanists that are far more creative uh, when it comes to art, when it comes to music, uh, you know, and, and some, someone like Bill that's, uh, you know, excels in math and, uh, you know, you see this in various areas. And so I think that that would extend to the ritual chamber as well. And when we're moving nature to our will, it's something that's being done because, we do possess the ability to focus ourselves mentally and emotionally and, and move nature, but it's a super normal thing. This is going to actually sort of bleed into my next question here um, as well, but do you think that because, because we're not aware of it, a lot of people refer to um, the science that may be behind it because we just have not discovered it yet, um, that it is magic, um, but that it is just completely just a natural part of things and maybe and i i'm pretty sure that um at least with my experience with my children it seems like children are a bit more adept at um mm-hmm. at, uh, changing their environments um according to their will than maybe adults do you think that that has anything to do with you know, growing up and, and being um force-fed uh, a state-driven education and sort of just having this this expected reality pushed on you. No, yeah, I think so. Um, also, another thing to keep in mind is, you know, as it even says in, in the Satanic Bible, self-consciousness has no role in, you know, in the ritual chamber and shouldn't be there. And I think it's sort of the same way with children where they don't have a lot of the the same inhibitions that adults have of how they're going to look in front of other people or act. And I mean, I've even seen, you know, people who claim to be Satanists and they say, well, well, I don't want to do ritual because I think I just feel really silly <laughs> saying all these things of the candle. It's like, how would you feel silly that there's, there's nobody else in the room. <laughs> and that does like sort of beg the question. Like if, if you are not comfortable with yourself yeah. doing something that I don't know. And, and this is just sort of my personal opinion here mm-hmm. that is so integral to Satanism itself that, how can you at all consider yourself a Satanist? You're lacking the one thing that's so important, and that's ego and self-confidence. Yeah, I mean, if you if you can't even, you know, just slip into that, you know, uh, the the knowing sense of uh, intellectual decompression, in, I mean, how can you even enjoy a movie or something like that? You know, can you even at least lose lose yourself in a movie for 90 minutes? Is it that much of a threat to your intellect to do that? Yeah, suspension of disbelief. I, I... Yeah, it's, exactly, suspension of disbelief. That's the term. <laughs> oh, man. Um, let me jump into the next question here. And this is going to be the last in the theory unless um, either of you want to uh, bring anything else up here. 
Uh, and I'm going to bring this back to uh, Reverend Billum here. There was a lecture put out by Michael Persinger um, called No More Secrets. Okay. And it was based around the idea that their inherent magnet, magnetic fields around the Earth allowed um, the storage of memories. And, and maybe not the storage, but the accessibility of thoughts and memories in each of us. And there were a significant number of studies in this um, uh, that they would take um, uh, these sort of test subjects and uh, run them through more and less magnetically charged areas. Um, it, it, you know, there's, there's certain areas around the Earth at certain times of its rotation around the mm -hmm. sun that are more or less magne magnetically charged. And they found, um, and certainly in this lecture, and if anyone hasn't seen it, please go to YouTube and look it up, um, that there was a correlation with the the less amount of external um, uh, magnetic field uh, interference equated to the uh, more natural telepathic ability of us human beings. Okay. And so the whole thing was based around this idea of no more secrets because you would be able to access everyone's minds. And immediately when I saw it, and I'm please you know bear. Mm -hmm. bite your cheek when I say this, but it immediately reminded me of uh, Avatar and how theirs was through the natural process of uh, energy through the Earth. Well, this is the natural process of energy through energy, you know, the mm -hmm. Earth's magnetic field itself. So that would be sort of the the human um, uh, internet, the, the, the mental internet of, of our world that would sort of define our thoughts, or, or not define, but store our thoughts. So sort of a background. That's what this is about. And I am butchering it compared to um, what this gentleman <laughs> does um, when he explains it. But with that in mind, yeah, um, do you feel as science discovers more, specifically thought reading via magnetic fields, um, according to that lecture, um, that it lessens the appeal of magic? Or does shining a light on the unknown cause the unknown to uh, lose appeal or gain appeal? Uh, I mean, I I don't know. I mean, without looking into the, the lecture and knowing much of anything about it, my, my natural inclination is to say, okay, this is probably a bunch of pseudoscientific bullcrap. Mm -hmm. But um, is there something to it? Is there, an, you know, I guess the central question really is, is there some as of yet undiscovered scientific principle that might be at work when you're in the ritual chamber? I don't rule out that possibility. Um but I don't know. Um, you know, I I just simply don't rule it out. And I think getting back to the point I made earlier, I think if you have to feel you have to rationalize this thing one way, I'm not accusing you of doing this, but you know, if you, if a person feels he has to rationalize this one way or another, it sort of defeats the the purpose of being able to you know do ritualized expression. Mm -hmm. That's you know that's my take on it. Um, whether it is the idea, if you learn more, does it ruin some of the esoteric appeal of it? I don't think that necessarily has to be the case. Um, you know, whether it diminishes or enhances it, I don't know. Is is the the mystery of it, the non intellectualizing aspect mm -hmm. of it, important to you um, when you're performing it? I mean, certainly it's a key while you're doing it, but. Is sort of the idea of the ritual itself. Is it more appealing because it's sort of in that gray area? Well, I think that, yeah, the, the, that is certainly something to it, that it 
does have uh, an appeal because of the whole esotericism of it all, of it all as uh, you know, Anton Lavey said in the Satanic Bible, the greatest appeal of greater magic is not so much uh, you know the wish grinding part, but just the whole esotericism of it all. Yeah. And uh, you know that, that's something humans always have. And in this case, I don't think that would you know discovers and uh, of you know allegedly some scientific connection. Does it rob uh, rob it of it? You know, it, my feeling is no. And uh, Storm, how do you feel about that? That's a pretty deep question. I, I don't think it's going to... It was, it was a long question. <laughs> yeah, sorry, I had to do a little setup. Yeah, um, it, I don't think it's certainly robbing uh, the the experience at all, but I agree with Bill that I don't know that I want to necessarily think that deeply about it. I go in there for the purpose of, uh, just as it's outlined in the Satanic Bible, to uh, clear myself anything that's going to hinder me from achieving my goals, from from being able to... Uh, do the things that I want to do in life that are indulgent or otherwise. So I go in there, like I said before, with with, with that sort of open mindset. Uh, but on the same token, I don't think that learning more is going to take away from it. If anything, I, th- I think it uh, lends the possibility of enhancing it. And uh, really, I I know uh, that you had uh, been in contact with Magister Nemo. I think that could be a great question to ask him if you ever had the opportunity down the road. I think that might be someone that could uh, properly answer that question and, and shed some real light on it. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe I'm oversimplifying here, but it's like, you know, I know what candles are made of, and they're made of wax, and, you know, there's nothing inherently magical about them, but I, it, that doesn't rob them of their, you know, the, the esoteric appeal of being in a room with lit with candles. <laughs> that's actually so, a really good point. I was going to say, that's an excellent analogy. <laughs> that's actually a really okay. good point. And, and I, I, I feel kind of stupid not having thought of that before, but I've always sort of been of the opinion that as a child, everything was magic. And there was mm-hmm. a richness about the world. And the more I grew and the more I learned, the more disillusioned I became. Um, not only with you know, my fellow society, but with the world in general, in, in that sort of, there was a lack of, of magic. And then, um, you know, I sort of uh, came of age and I, I, I really got into Satanism and I realized that that wasn't gone and I was so excited mm-hmm. about it. And now, if there's some sort of outing of the science behind it, um, I, I guess it really comes from a stance of fear, I hate to say, that it's going to do the same thing, disillusion mm-hmm. with it. Um, but now that you mentioned the whole candle thing, you know, the reality behind it is just a thing. And the fact that it still holds power when in the ritual chamber uh, actually gives me a lot of hope. <laughs> yeah, and it, there's also the whole subjective power and what you attach onto it. I mean, going earlier before to the music examples, uh, you know, there people are going to laugh at some things I listen to. I'm going to laugh at some things other people listen to. But there's an understanding, oh, there's a personal you know, emotional attachment that comes out of these things and harnessing that sort of, uh, you know, personal emotional energy and directing it is a lot of what Greater Magic is about. Greater Magic Practice Now you must come with us, taste our pleasures. Well, I'm going to direct this one uh, to you, Storm, uh, if you're all right with that. Sure. When was your first ritual, and would you be comfortable talking briefly about it? Our first ritual. Um, 
trying to think back when we really started doing rituals. Do you have just any any idea of, of, of maybe, you know, one of the first ones and uh, how it went for you? Let's see. I, I know it had been somewhere around the 2005, 2006 area. That's when my wife and I both started to be uh, far more active as far as the practice of rituals. And I know that we had done a couple of practice rituals before. Uh, and, I, and I don't want to say uh, practice as... Uh, like a dress rehearsal, uh, but certainly working our way up to what we felt was a very big and incredibly important ritual, which was when we baptized one another. Oh, yeah. And I think that that one stands out more than anything that we'd done prior to that. So, yes, we had done a, a couple before, but the one that really stands out in my mind would have been uh, Samhain of 2006. And that was such an unbelievably powerful ritual. Uh, given the hour that we'd done it at night, given the day that we'd done it, uh, the music, that was something that we were doing for one another. And frankly, when, when we were finished, we did feel changed. We felt completely changed. And, and it wasn't just something that uh, was emotional, but, but somehow we felt we felt different and we haven't felt the same since. Um, and like I said, you know, before it, it was, I, I don't want to say that, uh, that was anything by any stretch supernatural, but definitely, uh, we, we felt different. We felt, uh, I guess, the, I guess a good term would be, we felt more complete, uh, that we were, had, had finally gone through that process. Like, uh, there, there was something that was definitely profound, with our experience when we had baptized one another. And that one stands out more than anything that we'd done prior. So one of the first ones you did was, was a baptism. And I can only imagine that that, that would be a huge thing. I mean, that, that's literally you accepting, declaring, and ritualizing around who you are and, and sort of just basking in that. I, I think that's, that's a very, very, very good one to, to start off with. Um, and, and not only that, but the process of it, if, if you've read it in the Satanic Rituals, uh, there's a part where you are rubbing the earth into into the feet of the uh, of the of the other individual. Uh, one person takes on the role of the priest, and uh, the other person is the one being baptized. And for me, that that seemed so appropriate because I felt like we are becoming one with the earth. We, are, you know, and and for me, I feeling the earth felt right for me, and. You know, Satanism and uh, the atheistic uh, part of it, as well as, you know, taking in the the, uh, the greater and lesser magic aspects, you know, every bit of it felt right. It read correctly when, you know, when I read the Bible and uh, when we'd finally done that, I, I tell you what, it really did feel as though we were becoming one with the earth and that we were... Uh, I suppose, in a sense, sort of shielding ourselves from uh, the other religions that are out there and from uh, the normal uh, humans that are out there that, that we now label as sheeple and others. It was, it was somehow, ah, God, I, I can't really put it into words, but it, it was, like, like I said before, it was profound. Yeah, I went through the standard uh, baptism myself, and um, it was myself and a, a couple of other COS members, and it was conducted by... Uh, good friend of mine who um, was in the COS and he passed away earlier this year, um, citizen Phil Marfuda. And um, 
we did that at in, in his um, college dorm room at the time. We have it on film too. And uh, oh, nice. w- one of the lines that um, I always vividly remember from that, from the the part of the the sort of an oath part of Stanic Rituals, was uh, I reject oblivion of self and accept the pleasure and pain that comes with unique existence might not have the exact wording right but um for me personally that was something that always summed up the the baptism the whole you know satanic aspect of it for me this is actually bringing up a a question it's actually not on my list here but i'm gonna ask it anyway I don't know really how to put this here do you find it, it, it more powerful to take the ritual as written or do you feel that you should change it just to personalize it, or that you should change it because um, you would connect better with something that you did yourself? That's a good question. Um, I'm sort of, uh, for, for me personally, um, I like doing things by the book, and for me there's a certain esoteric connection I make between having this specific set of words that I only recite under these specific conditions in the you know in this setting for me that adds sort of to the esoteric appeal i've i've seen other satanists who try to argue like you know oh it should be completely personal and cuz it's all about you and yeah it's i understand where they're coming from but at the same time you still need some degree of structure to it. You should have an established beginning and end and, you know, point in between there. Yeah. I mean, the standard 13-step ritual as it is is actually very customizable. And also the fact that you can use whatever variations you want for, you know, tools, swords, and what and whatnot. You know, you're, it's already very customized, customizable. I agree. I agree. I, I think that uh, the ritual allows for you to, to put those sort of things in there, those additions that you want to make, and to customize it. And I know that when we do ritual, my wife and I, when we do ritual uh, in our chamber, it, uh, we, we do add a little bit, but we follow the structure and the outline that, that has been given. And I think there's a very distinct reason why that outline was given and why uh, – you know, Satanists should follow it. Not to say that uh, that's something that everyone should do, but for for me personally, I I do feel that yes, I, we should follow that, and then maybe add in a little bit of our own. For example, uh, maybe at a solstice ritual, I could add in some specific wording that would apply to the solstice, and you know, maybe specifically mention that that now as we observe the solstice, yada yada. But otherwise, I I agree with Bill that. Uh, there's a reason why that there's why there's an outline and why it has already been outlined for us. Nice. I I'm also a very uh, you know kind of by the numbers type individual, and I do feel like there there's a significant amount of forced personalization within the rituals that are uh, given as well. Um, so it's not like you know anyone should be compelled. Um, but I certainly don't see any fault with individuals who do want to, um, you know, go personal. As as long as they keep in mind that, and, and this is sort of, you know, the, the bottom line as I see it, it's called a ritual for a reason. There are certain mm-hmm. things that happen at certain moments. <laughs> That's yeah. the ritual of the ritual. Yeah. So yeah. you start stripping I, that away, and what do you have? You, it's no longer a ritual, and it's just sort of you doing something. 
Yeah, I mean, if you can't focus, it's, you know, about focus, and there's a degree of discipline in that, and I understand that both extremes are bad. You don't want to completely follow it by the book and think, oh, if I mess up this syllable in this knocking key, it's not going to work, or, you know, it's not like that, and on the other extreme, um, you know, it's just as bad of having absolutely no structure, but I think way more often than not, I see more people, if they make a mistake, are in that second category. (laughs) You know, I don't, I understand the problem people raise. Well, you shouldn't be doing it strictly by the book and then you should have some emotion. Yeah, I understand that, but I don't see people making that mistake. I see people more often making the opposite mistake. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So, um, what was, and and actually, you had mentioned that you did a a baptism, but what was the first type of ritual that you performed, uh, Reverend Bill? Oh, the, well, (laughs) the first formalized ritual, well, the thing is, um, I, I sort of came, before I discovered Satanism, um, I sort of came from that path of being the occult dabbler yeah. and reading and taking pieces out of whatever, um, you know, stupid Llewellyn book I could find at the yeah. time or the Simon Necronomicon. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, you know. Um, things like that and piecing that together. So, I mean, my first formalized ritual was... Um, I, I was like 14. This is sometime in like the late 1980s on Halloween night. And, you know, I wrote out some things and structured it and just found any candle I could find in the house, any incense I could find in the house, and, you know, and, and just slapped it together. <laughs> but I, I, the, you know, sort of, I see people who try to almost like make excuses and think like, well, I haven't ritualized yet because I, I haven't found a gong yet or I have you know, <laughs> been able to find a bell <laughs> and I want, you know, this to be absolutely perfect. And it's like your first time having sex. It's it's not going to be glorious by any means. It's, <laughs> it's, it's something you get better at with practice. Yeah. <laughs> so it, I mean, just, it doesn't, is it really that hard to just, you know, put on some music you find really moving and, Light a candle and print out a baphomet for you. Print it out from the web and scotch tape it on the wall. Just do it. Yeah. Going back to that first uh, ritual I had when I come when I think back about it, um, the candles, the little plate that I used for the uh, the pentagram I had in the middle, and the bell, and I think some other uh, candle holders, I actually all obtained at a church bazaar. Really? Yeah, little did they know. Uh, <laughs> hey, repurposing, it, man. That's awesome. Yeah. Humorous irony. Just wanted to share. Yo, I know oh, that you... Warlock Blackthorn has talked about using uh, candles that were, I, if I remember correctly, used in his, uh, I want to say his first communion. I can't remember, but he was also raised Catholic. <laughs> and he had taken some of those items and used them in his baptism ritual. And and, it was, and I thought, well, what a powerful way to to sort of wash that away and welcome in, like, like I said before, the the earth and uh, you know, sort of saying, yes, I am I am officially Satanist. Because for me, like I said when when I'd done the baptism ritual, it was somehow official. That that was for for me. Uh, you know, I, I don't want to say anything bad about uh, receiving the, the the red card, but that was what was really official for me was the baptism ritual. Yeah, you like to formalize big events in your life with ritual. You know, it's the way we all are. And, I mean, to that, my first ritual was um, a very much impromptu. 
uh, in the middle of a field in Idaho because a friend um, asked me to aid the passing of his, his dying father who was in a, a significant amount of pain um, on his deathbed. It was inevitable that he was going to die. And uh, so, you know, my first ritual was destruction, not because of any negative intent, but for actually compassionate intent. And it was pure off the cuff, uh, just me and nature, and it was, to date, the most powerful in my memory. Mm -hmm. So, you know, a little word um, uh, to everyone's ears out there. Don't worry if you don't have the gong. <laughs> yeah. It, I mean, if you read the Satanic Bible, it's like, okay, you can substitute so much stuff. I mean, LeVay purposely made it so that anybody could, you know, get things started. I mean, if you think things in the Satanic Bible are complicated, you obviously haven't read any other occult book. Because I've I've read some of these other occult books where it's like, okay, you have to, you know, gather this and the, the 13th phase of the moon on a Tuesday and you know it, it, it won't work if you don't have the, it's like a scavenger hunt it's not a yeah. ritual at all and, you know it, where you read a satanic bible it's like okay a sword you don't have a sword or just use a no you know any sort of cane or stick parchment paper you don't have parchment paper all right just use paper gone well you only need that for group ritual it's that's what I like about it is that yeah it's, it focuses less on the preparation, and it focuses more on yeah. the expression. Well, I think um, somebody had said at some point, uh, described LeVay as having taken uh, Occam's razor to the occult world. And <laughs> I thought that was just a, a great description, because that's what he did. He sort of went through all this occult muck and was like, okay, what, you know, what really works, and why does it work, and what stuff is just you know, there for window dressing. Yeah. Um, okay, so, uh, Bill M., <laughs> what are some of the technical tricks that you learned uh, from your first attempt? <laughs> um, I, don't, I don't know about anything specific I learned from that first time, but, um, you know, as I mentioned, when you're, you're doing more ritual, you you become more mindful of things and are less likely to make, you know, mistakes of, of some kind or another. Um and what I mean is, I've sort of learned over the years, like, okay, I have, like, some kind of idea of how long this is going to take. I should make sure I have, like, at least this much music. And, oh, yeah, remember to take the phone off the hook and remember <laughs> yeah. to, you know, make sure I have this part alone. And, you know, does this work? And do I have the things, some steps, crib notes or whatever written out beforehand? <laughs> you know, it, it's the little things like that, but, um, you know, the little things that just help make it go along. And nothing ruins a ritual faster than the cell phone <laughs> ring. <laughs> oh, isn't that the truth? <laughs> so, Storm, do you have any technical tricks that you learned from one of your first attempts? Um, I think that uh, it's pretty much been covered, but I, I also like to make sure, uh, as much as we, given our circumstance with, with kids at the house and that sort of thing, we like to have as much privacy as possible. It is yeah. definitely a very personal thing. So I don't want to have interruptions of a cell phone going off, of someone uh, rushing into the room and having a question with homework or something like that. <laughs> that's, that's definitely going to, you know, ruin the mood and, and, and you're done. It's, it's so, you know, we, we had compared uh, an experience of ritual to an experience of first-time sex. Well, you could be having sex with the uh, <laughs> wife, and this time it's very experienced in having someone rush in to suddenly say, hey... Oh, whoops! Yeah, it's over now. This is what it looks like. Yeah, we're 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 now gonna have to wait until another time and start over because the mood just yeah. got ruined. 
very important to to plan it out, to have a you know time of day has been important for us. Mornings are all right, but we still try and make the room as dark as possible. So ideally, if we can do it at night, it tends to be better for us. Um, and yeah, I guess just, it ruins the moment just, if you're turning to a to a window during the day and you're trying to you know invoke. <laughs> Belly all and there's a butterfly flying. By. Your neighbor's trimming yeah. his edge. <laughs> yeah, there's right. there's definitely you know I think all of those uh, factors are key, and so it's important we try and plan it out as much as possible to to have a very effective working. So the last thing we want is to to have a phone go off or like I said to have to have a child running into the room or whatever it may be. You want to have a you want to have an effective working because you want your greater magic to work. Yeah. Absolutely. One um, more quick uh, tip that just came to mind, actually speaking of swords, is if you're in a room with a chandelier, be <laughs> I'm going to leave it at that. <laughs> yeah. Well, you had mentioned when Storm was talking briefly um, about uh, animals. I can only imagine the havoc a stray cat would cause <laughs> running uh, across a bookshelf uh, or an altar. Yeah. Had, had it happen. <laughs> I tell you, yeah, one of the I, I've had it happen a little little dog getting getting loose and you know, oh. it, not, not good. Yeah, we've had we've had curious cats, and so we've learned that we also must kind of contain the cats elsewhere, otherwise they want to help. Right? <laughs> and I think Lily, you are not helping. I don't care if your full name is Lilith; you are not helping right now. Yeah, uh, one of the I guess one of the early ideas I had was. Um, when ritualizing was you want the room to be as dark as possible. Just keep it as dark and as black as possible. And if you're not wearing a hood, that's one thing. But then the first time I wore a hood and it made it that much, I couldn't read anything. I couldn't yeah. see anything. The whole time I was like holding <laughs> the, the book to the candle, trying to see the words in the candle. It was just a yeah. nightmare. Well, that's another thing, making sure you can read stuff. Um, the way I have my altar set up at home now is I actually have a, uh, a, a black light um, nice. on. So in, in addition to the, the candles, I sometimes have that on. Yeah, one of the uh, little things I, I noticed in the um, 666 event that happened, uh, they had spotlights just shining on the altar or, or localized areas. Oh, yeah. And that's, I mean, it, it's so obvious that I completely overlook shit like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, and people, we, you know, we had to be able to see it in the audience. <laughs> Yeah, and that's the other thing. Is it, I mean, you. So you were there sitting down, right? Oh yeah, yeah. I was there, uh, right there in the second row. So let me ask. I mean, this is actually stepping outside of the, the whole the practice questions here. But mm-hmm. was there a? I mean, I mean, could you feel the power of the moment there? And and maybe do you want to speak to that for a minute? Yeah, sure. Um, it, it was most certainly a just a very powerful ritual, even if I was seated in an auditorium versus, you know, standing in a circle with a robe. But, um, you know, the, each invocation was just very, uh, you know, very powerful. Music was very moving. and It, it was uh, most certainly a Vandala was remember. Hell yeah. And, and I may ask this because I have personally never performed a group ritual before, and mm-hmm. I've always been afraid that the more people you have, um, the less the less focus I feel like would be there, um, which obviously isn't the case, but it's just sort of one of those um, ideas that I have. And until I dis, you know, until I do it, I'll, I'll never dispel it. Um, 
But do you feel like because that ritual um, experience was broken up into into sections, that the individual focused um, rituals within the greater ritual were more or less effective? That's a good question because I was um, even wondering at first. Um, I was like, hmm, if they're going to, you know, how could you do all three conjurations in the same ritual? Because actually, going back to my very first. Um, you know, formalized ritual. I did sort of different themes within the same, you know, the same ritual, and sort of a rule I learned after that was, well, just keep the one thought. But uh, in the case of the six six zero six high mass, um, it I don't know, it, it just worked. Um, there was enough um, it, stuff in between where the real thought of each one really settled in, and you could feel the impact of each one. So uh, it didn't detract in in that particular case. I think that uh, when you're going to start engaging in group rituals, that uh, the major factor, and and you'll read this at somewhere like Letters of the Devil, um, you know, anyone else that is a member will definitely tell you it's it's going to be about picking the right individuals. You know, certainly mm-hmm. don't, you don't want to have outside people that are that are curious. Uh, that want to look under the tent flaps, this sort of thing. If if they're not Satanists, and and I don't necessarily mean that they have to be uh, full fledged card carrying members, but they definitely need to be right there. You know, they need to be damn close to card carrying members if they're going to engage in this process. And that's what I mean by the right individuals. If you have the right individuals there, I think it can be very powerful. Mm-hmm. There's also the different roles and responsibilities. Um, you know, some people are just better speakers than others, and it. The, I think the standard satanic ritual, even with the group sense, works well when you have you know one person acting as priest that you know things can come back to. And it doesn't mean you can't incorporate you know reading parts for other people or you know have one person strike the gong. Yeah, you know, there, there's enough jobs like that to you can you know go around with. Okay, so this was a question sent in by one of the listeners. Uh, Storm, I'm going to ask you first here. What was the proper way to employ the infernal names as listed by the Satanic Bible? Uh, second part of that question. Should I call out the entire list, or is it better to lock in on specific names for a better focus in the ritual? I think it's, a, it, I think it's an individual question. Um, in fact, it, to my understanding, when you read the Satanic Bible... Uh, I think something like that is is definitely personal, and is going to go with the ritual that you are doing. You know, you I would think that uh, you want to call out a certain uh, set of names for a destruction ritual as com- as compared to a compassion ritual, and I think it's going to uh, be up to the individual that that is performing that or the group that's performing that particular ritual. And I don't think that you necessarily need to go through the entire list. Yeah, I, I'm sorry. I mean, I heard that question. I'm, I'm kind of biting my tongue, and I, I don't want to sound mean, but it's like, who's going to read that entire list <laughs> and call out every single? No, you just pick and pick, pick the ones you want. Yeah. yeah. In fact, I don't even think that uh, when you read that or when you watch the Satanic Mass, uh, when Doctor Levay is performing it, I don't recall him doing the entire list. No, so he, had a, he had a select as a select group of infernal names that he called out. So um, the answer is no. You don't read the entire list. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I think if you want to go to the source, that's the source right there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you, and, you and can, in the same time, I'm sorry. Go ahead. 
I was gonna say I, I suppose you could read the whole list, but why would you want to? Yeah, and I, I sort of I go back to design school on this point when when talking about typography and, and bear with me for just a second here. Um, when choosing typography, there's a number of things you have to take into account, and that's the history of the type as well, and the era that it was created in. So if you apply that notion to these different infernal names, well, really what you're talking about are, are historic reference to gods. Look at the <laughs> cultures that they were in, look at um, uh, what they represented in those cultures, and then apply that notion to the ritual that you're performing. Yeah, I mean, just read through the descriptions of, you know, what each of these deities represented. And I say, you know, what I do is I pick whatever is relevant to whatever, um, you know, if if I'm doing a Conjuration of Lust, I'm obviously going to pick some of the uh, deity names that, uh, you know, are are more in with that archetype. Yeah, absolutely. Or uh, I also have my personal preferences, and I've also run into Satanists who had their own personal preferences of, uh, you know, specific infernal names that they, you know, felt a sort of a strong resonance with and included, would include that in every ritual. Another thing I've actually done, um, and I don't know if anybody else has done this, but here's a suggestion for other people throughout there. When doing a conjuration of destruction, uh, one thing that I've done is pick infernal names from regions that kind of match the uh, ethnicity of the victim. I'm picking. Oh, nice. So, if, say somebody's from you know uh, Greek descent, I'll you know pick one of the infernal names from uh, Greek mythology. Yeah, so I like that. I've always personalized the the decision. I've never uh, externalized it like that, like connecting it with the actual recipient. Mm-hmm. So that's actually a really smart way to do it too. So I guess the, you know the bottom line is to uh, it, obviously no, you don't want to read the whole list. And if you want to choose specific ones, educate yourself about the result and the origin of the names. Mm-hmm. You can pick however many little or you know however many you need. I'm I usually stick with you know five or six, but that's just me. Yeah, I think I think four is usually mine. Do you have a certain number, Storm? I don't. Uh, for lack of a better term, I go with what feels good. Yeah. Well, that's <laughs> you can't argue with that. <laughs> yeah, that's that's kind of how we go with it. I mean, I I definitely have something scripted when I when I get into the ritual chamber, but uh, as as I'm scripting it, I put together just like his build mentioned uh, ones that that seem appropriate uh, to the particular ritual they're performing. And I just put down what I, what I think feels good. I think, Oh, well, okay. This time it's five. Maybe next time it's seven. Maybe next time it's only four, but whatever feels good that time is, as I'm scripting it together. That's what I, that's what I run with. Nice. So Bill, you had mentioned that, uh, you knew of some people who had sort of, sort of go-to names. Do you have any go-to names, you know, sort of deities that you identify with that you always include? Um, I've sort of, been in the um, been in the tradition of using Malik Taus because that was a favorite of uh, my friend Phil, nice. who passed away. I mentioned uh, that was so, it was one. I, I guess he just always liked the sound of it, it so it he does have ended, ended up using that. Yeah, and I did a um, a conjuration of um, compassion for him uh, shortly nice. before he he died. He had he had cancer and he knew he was on his way out. Um, and I certainly made a point of uh, including that infernal name and some of the others he liked. Nice. 
Yeah, I, I've always, and I'm not entirely sure why, to be honest, but I've always had a, I always start off with Osmodeus, and it could be the A, mm -hmm. it could be uh, the, the um, I don't yeah. know, sort of maybe biblical connection or something, yeah. um, but I've always referenced that one. I mean, like um, a name, just because you like the sound of it, that's perfectly fine. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it's yeah, whatever, whatever invokes the emotion for you. I have to admit, I've gone to names because I relate to them as a black metal fan. That's why I, I like to throw in, like, Behemoth, <laughs> Gorgoroth, and yeah. whatnot. Cause I, somehow it, I, I relate to it because I think, oh, wow, that's the same name of one of my favorite black metal bands. <laughs> and, you know, I, I know that doesn't sound really deep, but somehow I relate to that. And so I'm able to I just like say, Gorgoroth. When I'm in there, it, it just sounds great and powerful, and I relate to it somehow. Actually, Baphomet, um, as I pronounce it, other people argue it's supposed to be Baphomet, but um, that's one I I particularly like, uh, mainly because that was also the name of uh, the deity in one of my absolute all-time favorite movies, uh, Clive Barker's Nightbreed, which is based on his novel, oh, Cabal. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And, um, yeah. That's a whole other discussion because I think that there's certain satanic principles in that about the beast within and yes, yeah. but uh, yeah. yeah Same the novel would be a better. Not, not you don't, don't want to get yeah, you don't want to get me on that subject. I'll, I'll say not to get on a real private <laughs> tangent as another huge fan, but uh, I would say Lord of Illusions is another one that seems to have a lot of uh, aspects to it that could be interpreted mm -hmm. the same that, the same yeah. way as Nightbreed. Yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. I mean, for that, you could even go into Hellbound Heart and the idea of uh, pleasure and pain and unlocking sort of the the, the demon within. Oh, um, yeah. Very cool. All right. Um, let's move on to the next question here. And, and actually, I'm going to pronounce this uh, differently than you did, uh, Reverend Bilem here, but um, did you ever read the Enochian keys in their raw format, or do you, while you're ritualizing, or do you go to the English um, version that uh, Anton LaVey transcribed, and if you do do the doo-doo, uh, <laughs> you know I'm a little kid when I say shit like that. <laughs> yeah. um, how do you pronounce the language? Uh, do you have sort of a, a fallback um, culture that you use to sort of phonetically uh, say these, these words? Um, I'm going to direct that first to Storm and then Dylan. I, I think I'd like to, to try it. And uh, I think if we can ever get that, that group ritual pulled off, I'd, I'd like to definitely try for this coming Walpurgis. But... Uh, I would like to in incorporate that, and I've heard from others that they feel that there is a certain uh, powerful aspect w when they read the keys. However, for the most part, when we've done it, my wife doesn't really like it. She says, you know, it it's as though, you know, she's you know, for her, it might as well be uh, listening to the Spanish channel. She doesn't get it, so say it in English to, to, you, to where she can understand it, and she gets more out of it that way. Mm -hmm. So I kind of... You know, for for her benefit it, as well as my own, you know, because it is you know it's a together effort when we're when we're ritualizing. Uh, you know, I I stick with the English version, but uh, I think if we ever do the group, I I would love to go uh, into the Enochian keys and uh, and recite them as as they're written in Enochian. Nice, um, Villa? I always uh, stick with Enochian myself. Enochian, Enochian. It's like the Baphomet. Uh, Baphomet. Right. <laughs> potato, potato. Potato, tomato. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah I, I always stick with the uh, Nokian myself just because I think it's a very, um, you, you know, very moving, primal-sounding language. And you don't have to, you know, um, understand what it's about 
you know, I think to under to really be moved by it and understand the beauty of it. Um, yeah, I think of back of uh, that scene in Shawshank Redemption where he's playing the Italian opera and says, yeah. you know, you know, it d- didn't really matter what the words were, you know, because it was sort of communicating that idea. Um, and while I'm reading it, I'm focused on you know whatever it was the whatever ritual it was I was doing. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as pronunciation goes, uh, you know, there, there's that of course uh, the uh, the pronunciation guide that Anton Lavey wrote, which is now available you know at churchsatan.com. Um, usually, it, it comes down to like pronouncing every letter, uh, pronouncing the vowels. I think as um, usually as long vowels versus short. And um, uh, sort of pronouncing the the consonants, I think, with a almost a bit of German. That's sort of the way I go. Oh, wow. and I mention it because when I watched the six six zero six and uh, Reverend Brian Moore um, reading through it, it almost sounded like Latin when he was saying it. Yeah, I mean, it will be slightly different, um, you know, for other for other people. How they do it, you know. Yeah. I've heard uh, you can hear examples. I think on um, the the Satanic Mass album from you know from Levey about how he did it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, it's funny because it it always seems to be the biggest beef with uh, people from Aleister Crowley's group and the Golden Dawn. <laughs> people saying, "Oh, his translations were you know all bad and wrong." And yeah. it's like, well, he says right in the Satanic Bible, here is an archaic but satanically correct translation. Yeah. If you did, tra- if you translated it literally, it's like there's no prepositions, and you know that's not going to sound good. <laughs> you should be liberal I, with translations in the, in that setting. Yeah, I know. I know when I read it, and and I record it, and I hear it back, it always sounds uh, Native American. Hmm. Like I always feel like, and that's why it struck me so odd when I heard um, uh, the six six zero six ritual. I was like, "Holy shit! How did how does he get it to sound like Latin?" <laughs> and it may just be, you know, growing up in the '80s and and surrounded in that whole satanic panic. Mm-hmm. But growing up, I always thought the the only redeeming fact of the entire Catholic Church was the ritual <laughs> sound that they had. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was so interesting the fact that they used, um, you know, the Latin translations of everything whenever they did their rituals, and it sounded so much more uh, authentic. Yeah. Than hearing the English one, and well, so as, uh, yeah, I mean, as Levey said, right in the Satanic Bible, when you know the Catholic Church had the Vatican II Council and they changed everything to English, they sort of lost the whole esoteric appeal that was emotionally moving in the ritual. Yeah, <laughs> so. yeah, absolutely. I, I Not was, our problem, but <laughs> <laughs> but, but it, you know, it, it's that sort of idea. So, so what I like to do is. Um, Obviously, whenever I'm selecting an Enochian key, I'm reading through the English translation to see which one, because that's how I do it, is, is I, instead of going off of uh, time and, and yeah. pace of, of the sound, <laughs> I like to know like the meaning behind it. And oh, I, I, sure. I, I still pick the, you know, whatever is related to the theme. I still do that. Yeah. But yeah. As, as far as English versus the Enochian, I, I go for the, you know, the Enochian. Yeah. Well, cool. That's awesome. Um, I, I'm interested if you're ever willing to share uh, one of your rituals that you may have recorded. Um, I, I would love to hear it. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I could just pick up the book and read a line. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, here's 
I mean, here's how I would personally pronounce it. You know, again, it's a matter of personal preference. If I just pick up, I got Satanic Bible in front of me. Uh, let me read like a line from like the first key. Olsonov va or es aji gohuyad balata. Nice. That's me. Hell yeah. And I always think it's fascinating hearing hearing other people say it. I, I just, I, I absolutely love it. I, I love the way it sounds. Yeah. Even if you don't necessarily, you know, know the phrase that's being spoken. Yeah, it, even if it looks like LeVay just dropped a typewriter down the stairs. <laughs> yeah. It, it's, it's the fact that it's still a, a guttural. You know. <laughs> yeah, I, I have to admit that it does sound somehow more authentic, if you will. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, and and uh, if you want to compare something like horror movies, when you see horror movies and they're doing incantations to raise the dead or whatever it is that they're doing, um, look at something like Beetlejuice, which I know is a fun movie, but when they're doing their Love incantation, it. it seems very kitschy because yeah. it's English and it's got this rhyme scheme to it, mm-hmm. but somehow English seems so modern that mm-hmm. it doesn't seem like... How's that going to raise the dead? But yeah. when you were talking about even Latin, it seems like, wow, that is an ancient language. Of course those ancient people knew how to do magic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, and I, they were for ancient me, warlocks that were at Stonehenge that knew these <laughs> languages that came from the great beyond. You know, and, and when you hear this, you know, even when Bill just mentioned those few words, you think, wow, yeah, that, that, that made something happen, didn't it? As opposed to, I now call forth. Yeah. You know, it just doesn't yeah, seem yeah. as powerful in English. Especially mispronunciations. It's very apparent in English. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's much in the others. <laughs> I, I um, say, yeah, quick, uh, uh, another ritual blooper. I remember somebody doing the conjuration of uh, destruction. He came, uh, there's, there's that line, his puny brain. And he mispronounced it as his punny brain. <laughs> It's hard to stay on track when you hear, you know, it's like, I just keep going, keep going. Everyone, everyone's just like not saying anything, just nodding their head like, yep, come on, yeah. pick it back up. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm often reminded whenever I read it and I, I do my damnedest to kick it out of my head. Um, and maybe, you know, this is the first time I, I, I did the, um, uh, formalized ritual when I was reading it, and I immediately started thinking of Army of Darkness. Mm-hmm. When, he, when he was calling out the Necronomicon, and he was just like, <laughs> All right, I said it. Yeah. Uh, I said it. <laughs> like, well, this is also, awesome. I think, yeah, if, you know, I think that actually also brings up a difference between satanic magic and a lot of other magic, where a lot of other magic is sort of... Um, the analogy I use is that a lot of other people think magic is like a chain, where if you mess up one syllable or you you know you, you turn in the wrong direction or whatever then that's it the whole you know the whole magic of the thing is blown but in satanic ritual it's not really about that and the analogy i use is that it's more like a rope where everything you do right is sort of adding a strand to that every emotional setting you can get in the intellectual decompression chamber it makes that makes that rope stronger mm-hmm. and fumbling one line is sort of like removing one strand it, you know the rope's not going to break yeah, that's a good analogy. Here's a question that uh, I know the little boy inside of me loves to hear. <laughs> Have you ever used a woman as the altar, and do you feel like it added or detracted from the ritual? 
I've had the altar of flesh before um, in some rituals, and I think it added to the whole thing because it just um, it just made the whole thing formalized. It wasn't a distraction at all because your mind is still focused on the whole ritual, and you know she you know she's part of it. And, um, I, I, one woman in particular who always comes to mind, she liked doing the altar just because for her it was like the easiest thing. It's like oh, all I have to do is just lie down here. <laughs> So, um, Storm, have you, have you? Yeah. Oh yeah. Tw- twice. In fact, um, I don't know if you've seen on my, my personal profile, but, uh, there, there's a picture it's restricted to, uh, to members being able to view it. But yeah, there's one of them that, uh, I posted up there and, uh, there was another group ritual that we done when we had an altar of flesh and in both cases it added to, to the whole vibe. I mean, it added to the entire mood and the working, it was incredible. It, it didn't take away anything. Um, and and just like uh, what Bill was talking about, uh, in both cases, the ladies didn't mind at all. In fact, I think they uh, helped to increase the mood and the energy in the room because they they liked being uh, somehow looked at. And they're being looked at quite literally as an altar. You know, and that's a level of respect that they're that they're gazing upon the altar, and that is reciprocated back. I mean, that you can't help but feel good when you're being appreciated, as opposed to someone that you know. If you take off your shirt, like I know, if I take off my shirt in a room, we'd have the ooh, you know, like you have that kind of. A, but rather, they are looking at it thinking, oh, you know, it's it's a very you know, it's so, somehow powerful when they look upon this this beautiful altar of flesh and think, oh. And so, you know, it, it's on, uh, it's inspiring. It's, it definitely enhances the, the entire, uh, the, the ritual. So do you think it's, it's appropriate in all ritual situations to have a flesh altar? I wouldn't say all. I mean, if you're doing a solitary ritual, obviously it's not, you know, not going to apply. Yeah. If any, any group ritual, I don't see, you know, how it would necessarily not fit. Nice, uh, Storm. Do you have anything on that? No, I no, I I think the same thing. I, I, we're certainly not going to have a model come over every time that uh, my wife and I are going to engage in a ritual. Say, okay, well, we're ready for you this Friday. We'd like you to come on over and <laughs> you know, be be our nude altar. But and that actually it, kind of brings up another question I had. So, as far as the altar goes, are you literally using the altar as an? Are, are you are you objectifying this this woman as? Not not a part of the ritual, but an object in the ritual, or is it important to have her also be a Satanist and an active part of the ritual? If, if she's a Satanist, so much the better. Um, you know, I, I have seen other rituals where you know they would hire a model or somebody who wasn't a Satanist, but you know, the girlfriend or wife of somebody who is participating is in it, but. Um, as far as the argument, oh, is it sexist? Uh, objectifying? I, I don't. I don't really see it at, at that as that. I hadn't even um, considered that. You know, it, you have a willing participant who's part of this. So, right. Yeah. And do you think? Do you think that it would add or subtract to? Um, I don't know. Maybe, maybe your uh, your focus if. It is a willing participant versus a, uh, an employed participant. Well, yeah, I mean, I think if it's somebody who's just, you know, sort of an employed one, that depending on 
you know, if they're like sort of not in the mood, not really want to be there, that you know might certainly have an effect on things. If you get like, as, a sigh. As, <laughs> yeah, or as Storm, you know, mentioned before, the idea of having you know people who want to go underneath the tent flap, so to speak, that can be. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, I'll do it. I'll, I'll be the altar. Giggle, giggle, and then she gets there. She's like, "Ugh, yeah, I don't want to do this." And... <laughs> Fortunately, I've never run into anything like that. Yeah, I'd, been, I'd say the same. Fortunately, the two times we did it, we didn't run into that circumstance. I feel like, um, and this may just be a sort of weird purist in me, but it seems like it, it would be all that much more uh, gratifying to have, uh, you know, that satanic alter um no matter what but i i would imagine that uh there are some you know certain situations in ritual as you mentioned bill that uh you know like a personal ritual obviously you wouldn't have a flesh altar or or you mm-hmm. probably wouldn't but what about like a lust ritual i mean is that the personal ritual you were speaking of yeah as a good example i mean i think conjuration of lusts in general should probably be uh, you know, a solitary ritual, not a group ritual, as um, you know, as LeBay even mentions in the book. Yeah. That's something that is something that is much more conductive, uh, you know, to a solitary setting. Maybe a little awkward in a group. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. I need everyone to turn around for just a second. <laughs> I can't do what you're watching. Yeah. Almost there, almost there. <laughs> no. It's not good. Uh, all right. <laughs> Um, okay, so, and, and this sort of speaks to the next question here. Are there rituals that you perform alone, and are there some you prefer uh, to be in company to perform? So, uh, Storm, given the three types of ritual, you know, the three generic types of ritual um, outlined in the Satanic Bible, are there some that you just, you would never want to do in a group? And equally, are there some that you would only want to do in a group? I, well, I, I think we pretty much covered it. I, I don't know that I'd want to do necessarily a lust ritual. If we were going to do any sort of lust ritual, I would definitely want to modify it, you know, so that no one feels like they're, you know, so that they're not feeling like they're in an awkward position or yeah. anything like yeah. that, that they suddenly feel like, oh, my God, I need to be a porn star now. <laughs> um, okay, but, but what about, like, a destruction ritual? Oh, no, I have no issues. In fact, with a very small group, we've done uh, both destruction and compassion and had them very fulfilling. And I, I would, uh, I'm all about doing them both uh, with with either you know uh, very limited individuals solo or or in a group. I think they're fantastic and very effective. Bill, do you have any preference? It's certainly quite moving when you're doing, say, a destructive ritual, and you know, you, you know, the priest or which way may or may not be you, just you know, saying "Hail Satan" and just having everybody in the group respond screaming back hail satan yeah that's very moving you know very invigorating um come to think of it the though as far as uh, i mean the conjuration of lust should basically be a solitary thing uh but i come to think of it the 6606 high mass did include a conjuration of lust yeah. but in that setting it wasn't so much a personal uh, desire thing. It was more of a more of a ceremony, more of a celebratory yeah. thing of you know celebrating the flesh and lust, and uh, you know in, in that in that setting it worked within a group context. But um, you know, Levey also spells out the differences, the advantages of both solitary and group in the Satanic Bible. Yeah, absolutely. 
Uh, it, it, but it is always nice to you know see other. I feel like I feel like I could be more expressive mm-hmm. in a destruction ritual solo. But yeah, I feel like there would be more energy in a mass environment. Like you know, your friends have your back, yeah. sort of thing. Well, also, especially if the other people, you know, also have if, if you're sharing a common enemy. <laughs> Yeah, you know, with other people in there, they'll say, you know, yeah, I, I want to be part of this, and I want to put my energy into this effort too. Hell yeah! The, oh, that's very true. We we did that uh, for the summer solstice. We mm-hmm. we had a very small group. There were four of us, and uh, you could feel it. It was it was definitely powerful. We'd done both destruction and compassion, and it was fabulous. I loved it, and you could, and it was. I think it was because we do. Uh, have the kind of common bond that we do, that we have the co- the camaraderie that we do, that it was so effective. Um, so, uh, Reverend Billum, what prompts you to use ritual the most? I, I would say it's just the emotional drive, really, and the need to release emotion. If some, you know, something's really on my mind, and I want to go do, you know, go do one of the three conjurations, that will prompt me to do it. I also have tradition too. Um, cause every, every Halloween, uh, since like the late 1980s, I've actually done a formalized ritual of some sort or another. Set and I do, yeah, I do it and record every year. And it's a personal tradition for me. Nice. Um, and whether, you know, I, whether it's emotional, I, I understand the idea of, you know, rituals should essentially be matching up with your emotions and that's when you, you do it. But um, for me, there's a there's an esoteric appeal in having that tradition. So it's emotion primarily, and not uh, the type necessarily that prompts you. Well, it, it's the emotion then wanting to go link that to a type. It's you know going back to sort of the purpose of ritual of trying to release that, uh, get build up and focus that emotional release. If there's something particularly eating away at me, that's when you know yeah. I might want to go visit visit the ritual chamber. Uh, Storm, do you have um, uh, anything that prompts you to go to the ritual more than anything else? My, my answer is going to be very similar to that. Uh, for me, I, I don't do so much destruction because destruction, uh, it, I think, takes a lot of energy out of you and not necessarily always in the positive sense. You know, it takes a lot to, to destroy someone. And I've got to be pretty fucking pissed off to want to, want to destroy someone. For me, it's a much greater release to do a compassion. And I tend to do it when I, when I do just like as, you know, as outlined in the, in the satanic Bible, it's when those things that are hampering me from being able to focus on my goals, I'm a big goal setter. And it tends to revolve frequently around business as well as personal endeavors. And uh, it might even be something as simple as wanting to uh, use it, use a part of the compassion to, Help, you know, help in some fashion with, with the kids and their and their progress in school or in their in their com- competitions or whatever it is, or or personally, and it's it's uh, utilizing that compassion ritual to help me better focus. When I leave, I feel wow, I just have a weight that's lifted from my shoulders. I feel far more focused, and I can get back in into that uh, into that drive mode and do what I need to do. So you'd mentioned that you. you- end up performing more compassion uh reverend Billum, do you have a type that you end up performing more often than others mm, 
I can't think of anything that really sticks out in uh, you know in terms of uh, frequency from that. And even then, it's not like I'm actually visiting the ritual chamber every week. Right. <laughs> you know, it's still. Uh, it, this is even another interesting point: is that you know I'm somebody who maybe ritualizes a few times a year, and that's sort of even considered frequent by satanic standards. Yeah, no, for sure. And another thing, um, Storm, that you had mentioned that that sort of uh, bears uh, noting here, and that's that um, performing ritual to to help your children um, in school and stuff like that. Uh, No one performs ritual expecting it to be an end-all to a solution, right? I mean, this is just one of many things that you are employing, many tools that you have employing success. It, It is not the successful tool. No, by no stretch, no. And and again, that goes back to what we were discussing at the very uh, beginning of this uh, of this panel is is that it's you know it's nothing that's supernatural, but maybe it is triggering something subconsciously to where I'm able to somehow give the the necessary support or use the uh, necessary lesser magic to uh, assist in the achieving of a particular goal. Uh, for example, in business, it it might be. Uh, ridding myself of what whatever's hampering at the shop or uh, in my personal life, whatever it is, it, it's ridding myself of that and helping me to better focus and and achieve those specific goals that that I had sort of set in motion in the ritual chamber. Yeah, one of my favorite um, quotes from Levey, I think, regarding magic was in uh, the Combination Lock Principle essay in uh, the Devil's Notebook. And uh, to paraphrase, he was saying, you know, look, if you want to know the truth about it, greater magic is really just a way of formalizing um, the acts, which otherwise would have gotten no attention if you you were to carry it out without ritualistic trappings. And uh, it's sort of like, you know, maybe it is, again, we go to the question, is it psychological? Is it all confirmation bias? That does play a big role in it. Maybe it is all it is. Maybe it isn't. But um, yeah, I, I certainly I think it's an important part of of any real solution. And as you mentioned, that you know this, I don't think ritual is something that you're going to want to employ for every little decision in your life. No, but it is one of those where it's if if it's a, a significant moment, and yeah. I think everyone can objectively understand which those are in their own lives. Well, sure. I mean, as I mentioned before, it's. I mean, this even goes beyond the ritual chamber. It's something humans just inherently do. I mean, the, that's always. I try explaining that whenever I run across the, uh, you know, the militant atheist types who are like, well, you know, I don't understand this how this ritual part falls into it. There's no logical reason behind it. It's like, well, there's no logical reason why, uh, you know, soldiers should fire 21 guns into the air during a funeral. Yeah, There's no yeah, logical yeah. reason why you should be blowing out flaming sticks on a on a cake on the anniversary <laughs> of your birth. But, you know, we we do these things for it's part of the ritualized expression that leads up to that event. I think that's one of the the fantastic parts about being human is that we are these you know, when we break it down, we are emotionally controlled creatures and ritual is the expression of that lack of rational emotion that mm-hmm. really captivates all of us. I think in many ways we're sort of pre-programmed for that. Yeah. yeah I mean, they, if, I mean, you, if you think about it, there, there's been ritual processes that have been going on throughout human history, whether it's mm-hmm. a baptism, whether it's a christening of a particular house, 
or whether it's uh, some sort of grand opening of a business. I mean, there's all sorts of different types of ritual that have been going on since the, since the dawn of, of humankind. Well, there's certainly plenty of evidence to show that we're biologically hardwired for that because, you know, we're – as humans, we're social primates, primates and we also evolved a, um, a sense of pattern matching where, you know, we're trying to draw correlations that exist. And that had a survival benefit, which is why we inherited it through – through evolution, um, you know, if we plant crops in this time of the year, we get a bigger yield yeah. this way and trying to draw those correlations. Um, but one of the byproducts from that, for better or worse, is, you know, drawing, um, it, ritualizing where you associate, you know, a certain ritual with a certain outcome. And, uh, you know, it's, LeVay seemed to be the first person to sort of, from a, you know, a religious standpoint, say, look, we are animals and this comes to comes down to everything biologically and it's okay to do symbolism for symbolism's sake. Uh, the Satanic Bible in the book of Belial says it matters not whether anyone attaches any significance to your workings so long as the results of the workings are in accordance with your will. Do you think an overzealous ego the demands recognition would be a detriment to success or future ritual workings? Yeah, I, I'm not so sure that it might be detrimental to if, if you're a little overzealous. I think ego is important and is certainly a major factor in what defines us as Satanists, but uh, I don't know that it, maybe if, a, if being a little overzealous might, might be counterproductive and, and to be avoided. Mm-hmm. I think it depends on how, you know, when that takes place in the process. I, I think all of your, your overzealousness and your, you know, your ego and your will should be taking place in the ritual chamber and after you complete the ritual chamber you really shouldn't be dwelling on it if you find yourself dwelling still in the idea then you haven't really gotten rid of all that emotion in the ritual chamber like you know you should have right and this sort of speaks to i would imagine a lot of the newer um practitioners uh is 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 analyzing results so do you think it's it's important to look after the ritual um, to, and, and I'm sort of setting this up here, to continue focusing for um, uh, focusing your your energy toward the end result, um, or do you think that I think I know what you're saying? Maybe okay. um, the, the another analogy, and it goes back to the sex analogy again, yeah. is. Um, LeVay said it, it should sort of be like the ambivalent feeling you have towards sex after you have sex. You know, once you finish sex, you're you know you're not horny at that point. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you know, if you're if you still are, then that means you haven't had a fulfilling uh, session, so to speak. <laughs> <laughs> no. um, so I, it, it sort of relates in that same sort of way. Um, I think sort of the ritual is sort of when you're getting that out. But this also begs the question, are you incorporating your ritual into other real-world world stuff you're, you're working at? Um, it's sort of hard to explain, and this gets back to that whole problem of, you know, trying to describe magic and, you know, na- nailing jello to the wall. Yeah. And, uh... <laughs> and it is sort of that thing that, you know, it, it comes up from time to time whenever you talk to people, is that, do you think... A ritual um, not succeeding the way you intended will f- harm future ritual workings. 
Well, I think it depends on your mental perspective of how you're taking this in. Um, you know, if, say, you cause a destruction ritual and, uh, you know, your, your enemy dies, um, you should just take that, to, you know, be sort of be proud of yourself in, in saying, you know, I, this was my desire and I got to see it in the real world. Um, and, you know, if you're having regrets about that, then that, that can, I think, can sort of, uh, you know, harm you. Not in any sort of supernatural sense, but just psychologically. That, you know, you're, you have the guilt. As, as LeVay said in the example, you know, you know, Wiccans and the like believe in the threefold law. It, well, yeah, that's because if you feel guilty about what you're doing, of course, it's going to feel, you know, you're going to feel three times as bad <laughs> yeah. about it. But if you're, you know, making an affirmation and making sure this is what I want without reservation... And things happen again, whether or not it was due to the ritual by coincidence, it doesn't doesn't really matter. The fact is, you got what you wanted. And that's another thing I think that is important is that when we're dealing with with abstract ideas of of generating and directing energy, where it's not a measurable uh, success, <laughs> and when I say that, I mean. You can't say, I'm going to use X amount of energy for Y amount of result. Yeah, you can't quantify it, uh, you know, Yeah, yeah. So as we understand it now. You have to be prepared for the ultimate extreme. And this is the way I look at it. You have to be prepared for the ultimate extreme of the type of ritual you're performing. So if you're performing a destruction ritual, you have to be... You shouldn't be doing it unless you're prepared for your target to die. Like, that is the goal of destruction. So if you're going in there, oh, I just want to hurt him a little bit, push him down some stairs. Don't do <laughs> And I'm by yeah. no means no. suggesting someone push As, someone as a, a poetic hypothetical example. Yeah. Thanks. But, I mean, that's, that's the idea, is that you have to be prepared for the absolute. Because yeah. we're not dealing in a three cups of this and two cups of that will equate, you know, a pie. I mean, we're literally saying, I'm putting all of my energy into destroying you. And then when you get hurt, I'm going to feel bad? I don't think so. That I, goes against the whole idea of performing in the first place. And it, it's not isolated, I don't think, to just destruction as yeah. well. well. If uh, you were going to spend the time for a lust ritual, you need to be prepared for some obsession. Is it going to happen all the time, ever? Maybe not. But that is a potential end result, and you have to be prepared for that, right? Well, I think also with the destruction, to take that a step further, I mean, if you finish a destruction ritual and you're, you know, you have the enemy, but you're still checking up on what your enemy is doing and, you know, still stalking them and following around, then obviously you still have that some kind of emotional attachment there that you should have been, you should have gotten rid of in the ritual. Once you do the ritual, you should feel like, wow, it should feel like your enemy is dead and gone from your world at that point regardless of what really happens in the real world. With, with lust, it's certainly bit. different, but, you know, because yeah. you're still on the pursuit in, the, in that case. I, I, and I, I think it, it bears a little bit of silence after what you just said about the destruction thing, because I feel like that's not, there, there's not enough emphasis on that. Because it's not a matter of following up with them. It's the fact that uh, you don't want them a part of you. You don't want them a part of your life. You don't want them a part of your reality. So why would you go back and continually check in on them? And let's say it's a, an antagonizing coworker or, or boss. Of course they're going to be around. But it's it's a matter of, of, of your 
Yeah, your emotional right. perspective and getting that out of the way and getting that out of your psyche, you know. Yeah, your focus. And that is that is sometimes difficult. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> I think that uh, wanting to uh, to verify the the working is it, sometimes difficult to not to not want to especially now with the way technology is you know you can go into to myspace or facebook or google plus or whatever and you can see that individual out there if you you know, most ever you know a lot of people have a have a profile and you can kind of check up on them and when you see something bad happen to them a, a part of you can't help but think that's right it, or, <laughs> fuck you oh uh, yeah but but on the same token, if they are having some sort of success and good things, you're thinking, "What? You? I'm back in that ritual chamber right now. You, <laughs> you, know, you can't help it, but want to think that you. Know, I, I think that there's something ingrained with wanting to, with wanting to check up on and make sure that are you dead yeah. yet? Has it happened yet? Yeah. I'm waiting. Die, motherfucker. Yeah. yeah, but if they're still eating away at you, it's like, well, then yeah, your ritual wasn't effective because it. You still get that emotional attachment there. Yeah, that, that is a good point. Okay, so at the very beginning of this um, discussion, before we actually started recording, uh, Reverend Billum, you had mentioned your BIC4 mnemonic. Uh, can you mention that for everyone else here? Oh, yeah, that's just um, a, a helpful little mnemonic I, I just made for myself. Um, if you look at the 13 steps of ritual, um, a lot of it really comes down to beginning, middle, end, and sort of in the middle um uh, Part before you, it, rather the beginning part. Um, you know what order do things go in? And I realize it comes down to you know the bell and the invocations and which lead up to the infernal names. Then the chalice, then the four points. So bell, invocation, chalice, four points. The way I remember that, it's B I C four, Bic four. Um, yeah, it's just a mnemonic, just a helpful mnemonic, and sometimes I just, you know, I'll write that on top of uh, sheets of ritual before I print it out. Um, because then, at, once you do that, the formalized opening, it's everything in the middle sort of just takes care of itself in the end. You know, you have the conjuration you read, you have the part where you do the the imagery and whatever else it is you're trying to ritualize about, and then there's uh, the you know knocking key and a closing. I wish I would have known about this earlier <laughs> because it is always whenever, you know, like I mentioned before, at the um, middle of this uh, discussion, I'm a very by the numbers individual. So I would always have like little cheat notes sure, uh, buried, you know, uh, sort of uh, put in, into my satanic Bible when I'm, mm-hmm. when I'm doing these little things. Okay, I do this now. This comes this, and I'm always a little concerned that I am focusing too much on the process and not as much on the expression. Uh, so having a little mnemonic like this to help me through the process, yeah. I think, is invaluable. Actually, mm-hmm. I'll fully script it. Yeah, but when I do it, I mean, I'll outright type it up, and uh, you know, paper. It, it, as far as that's concerned, it doesn't have to be a, a parchment paper, but I'll definitely type it all out, and I'll put it into a, a large print that can easily be read in candlelight, and I'll have all the actions as though I'm actually reading a play script. You know, where I'll have it, you know, turn. Or uh, you know, ring bell, whatever it is, I'll have those prompts actually written out so that while I'm so emotionally engaged in this process, I don't accidentally go over something or yeah. or miss anything. Mm-hmm. I'll outright script yeah. everything so that it's right there in front of me. And well, it's, it's interesting that the the three of us sort of have that 
sort of approach to this because I certainly know, you know, we, we've all met other Satanists who take a less formal approach to ritual and that's okay too. Cause you know, it doesn't have to be the bell and you know, this and that and some people, you, you can do a ritual without a bell. Yeah. yeah. Oh, sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. But for those of us who like doing the formal thing, I, I like the formal thing for the, the esoteric formal sake, <laughs> you know, yeah. as I mentioned, a little mnemonic I just came up with, thought I would share with the rest of the folks. I think it's fantastic. Um, and you know what? I guess by means of um, cooling down the discussion and uh, closing this out, let's talk about tools here. Um, what were some of the more challenging um, elements, uh, tools of the ritual that you have um, acquired? And uh, do you have any that particularly stand out in your mind? Um, let's start with Storm. Um, acquiring tools, what wasn't that bad? Um, I think probably one of the, one of the most difficult things for us was robes. The other stuff, it, and I'm sure other people have kind of fallen into this. Uh, we're, we're creative people. If I couldn't create it, I went to sources like eBay and was able to find. In fact, that's where we got our initial swords. Was were uh, were off of eBay. Otherwise, we created what we needed to, and uh, robes were probably the most difficult thing to track down. Fortunately, I'm married to a seamstress, so <laughs> that, that problem was quickly resolved. Um, if uh, you know, I, I would love to see more stuff back in the COS Emporium, so it, you mm-hmm. know, I, I'm hoping that that might, uh, you know, if Magister Frost is listening uh, when this episode is released, I, I would love to see that happen again where there are more ritual tools that, that are available. Uh, through the COS Emporium, I thought it was fabulous when when they were. Yeah. But but otherwise, I I mean, we're, we're saying this. We're creative individuals. I think I think we can, you know, with, with everything that's out there, and you know, with everything from Craigslist to eBay to Amazon, uh, you know, KSL. There there are definitely sources out there that you can put your your chamber together. Um, Bill M, do you have any? Uh particular tools that stand out in your mind, or um, did you have any difficulty uh, obtaining any specific tools that you employ? Uh, not in particular. I think um, the bell was one of the harder ones, but if you search around, you can find them. And I have uh, what's known as a Tibetan bell, and I've seen a lot of Satanists actually use the same model bell, and I think it's because it is, quote, loud and penetrating, yeah. as it's supposed to be, as the Bible says, what, you know, the how the bell should be. It should be a loud, penetrating tone, a soft and, you know, tinkling. <laughs> um, and uh, if you if you look in almost any New Age or occult supply store, they have that same Tibetan bell in various sizes you can get. And so, um, yeah, that's what I, that's what I use. Um, at some point, I had, like, the gong before the bell. And uh, interesting thing, actually, about the baptism is we had, like... We had half of the tools, um, and we were waiting for another Satanist to come in from out of state, and he had some other tools, but his car broke down. Oh. So we were, we were forced to, you know, to improvise. And uh, we said, okay, well, you know, we have the gong, but we don't have the bell. We'll just use the gong in place of the bell. And <laughs> it, it's, you know, it, it's, I guess it's good, forces you to be creative about that. Um, Certainly disrupts the air. Yeah. But um, I have a um, I have a couple of gongs I managed to find. I found like a gong at a at a flea market. 
was uh, one of the gongs I have. Another gong I have was um, bought by a friend of mine, and uh, he found it actually in um, Guitar Center and uh, you know music stores like that will carry huh. will carry gongs. It it doesn't have to be an enormous um, you know concert gong. It can just yeah, be like right. a nice ten inch that's, diameter. Yeah, Guitar Center. That's where we went for yeah. ours. Except we used we yeah. we put together we used a cymbal. <laughs> and well, I, I know you know. I was just going to say, I know a magister in the COS who said, you know, the hell, my first, uh, what did he say? My, my first uh, gong was a frying pan. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it works. Yeah, it works. Oh, yeah. But I, it's kind of like with the subject of tools, though. I, On one hand, yeah, I understand you don't need necessarily to do all the tools, have all the tools as long as you get that emotional setting and blah, blah, blah. But at the same time, I don't think people should try to like make excuses for themselves. It's sort of like, well, you know, I can't find candles, so I'm just going to do this like without candles. It's like, well, if you can't even, you know, be crafty and disciplined enough to find black candles anywhere, especially in the age of the internet, you know, <sighs> what what are the odds you're going to have the focus to take what it, you know, takes in the ritual chamber? Yeah, really. <laughs> Yeah, and for those listening, now's the time of year to get a massive amount of black candles. They're on yes. sale. Yes, yes. Go, go stock them up. Yeah, or November first, where they're on clearance. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, that's great. Fortunately, I, I've I live not too far from uh, Salem, Massachusetts, so it's like I can you know find stores that sell them oh, yeah. six to five days a year. I mean, I'm sure somewhere in Salem is probably like a. Goddamn Seven Eleven that has blankets. <laughs> Part of the tourist culture, you know. Yeah. But when it comes to the tools, uh, you know, I'm just picking up like the the Satanic Bible right here and just reading through that section. Um, if you read through it, it's like Levee says, "Okay, well, if you can't get that, you know, just do this instead." Yeah. And it's fine, you know. Clothing, uh, finding cloaks, you can find those sometimes at Halloween stores. Or I, I actually use a, a modified graduation robe. Oh wow! Uh, and I've found a couple of those graduation robes are you know one size fits all, zip up in the front, pretty simple. You know, altar, okay, a table, great. It doesn't have to be a trapezoidal thing. You don't need to have the altar of flesh. Baphomet, okay, print went out from the web. You know, yeah, just yeah. candles. Bell and chat, you know, that's a little harder to get along. But, you know, chalice, if, you know, find, take your favorite mug, you know, and so on. It's, uh, you know. Yeah, it's certainly not challenging at all to uh, put stuff together. Well, gentlemen, it has been a, a true honor to speak with you about this and a hell of a lot of fun, I would think, um, for the audience. And it certainly was for me. Thank you so much for joining me. I hope everyone out there has a fantastic Halloween holiday. Uh, I know I will. Uh, it's always a magical time of the year, and I hope this uh, discussion helps you not just kind of get in the mood for the holiday season, but also inform you a little bit about um, what some other Satanists think about ritual and um, uh, the process, the theory, and the practice of. Um, Reverend Billum, thank you so much for joining me. Well, thanks for having me. Happy Halloween. Citizen Storm, thank you so much. Oh, no, thank you. I... I... I find it an honor to have uh, you invite me back on the show, and uh, happy Halloween and happy Samhain to everyone out there listening. Until next time, gentlemen. Hail Satan. Hail Satan.
before we go, gentlemen, was there anything you wanted to talk about, uh, pimp out, so to speak? Because I, I have episode uh, 400 of The Devil's Mischief this upcoming week. Oh, my gosh. Congratulations. Yeah. Uh, what, what is episode 400 going to be about, if you can give us a sneak peek? Sure. Uh, I went back to the best of you – know, every once in a while I do the best of blasphemy specials where you know yeah. I take all, all of the religion bashing comedy and all that stuff and just put it into one hour. And I make each best of blasphemy unique so I don't repeat anything between those specials. Yeah. Um, so what I did is I went back to the very first two that I did, which I did for episodes um, like 50 and 51 on the first anniversary to celebrate the first anniversary. And I, I took those episodes, but they were like in a really low quality format because, you know, we had to have them at 32 kilobytes per second to stream them back then. This is back before podcasting when it was only an audio stream. Mm-hmm. So I took them and re-recorded the parts in between, took out the old advertisements of, you know, sites that no longer exist and uh, remastered the tracks, you know, re-ripped them from my CDs and whatnot and uh, put that together. So, Awesome. I'll I'll be having a uh, you know a remastered version of the uh, the very original best of blasphemy specials un- unaired since uh, 2004. Oh, I'm stoked! I want to hear that. <laughs> I, I, I thought the last one rocked. So yeah. I'm also trying to squeeze in the Halloween episode too, so that might be sandwiched in between because oh. uh, you know I don't want to do the Halloween episode in November. <laughs> yeah, seriously. <laughs> Storm, did you have anything you wanted to plug? Oh, well, if I'm going to have the opportunity, artonyou.com. <laughs> and I only say it like that because there, there are so many people out there that are not necessarily local that are listening, so that pretty yeah. much covers it. Go visit artonyou.com. That's artonyou.com. Tattoos, <laughs> piercings, and needful things. Radio voice included. <laughs> and now I'd like to announce... The winners of Nine Senses' first Greater Magic Episode Question Contest. That's right. I received a bunch of questions from a bunch of you out there. I really do appreciate that you took the time and sent in those questions. I think they were great, and I think they added to the show as a whole. I hope the answers you got made sense and uh, were (laughs) were entertaining in some way or another. Keeping anonymity in mind, the two winners of the signed copies of Gyps Falvis' Nocturnes for Nightmares are JFW and LG. Now, those are the initials of the gentlemen's names. I have reached out to them individually, and I will be sending those CDs as soon as you get me your addresses. And for all of you who didn't have your question read due to time, or hadn't thought of a good question maybe until now... I am planning on doing this once a year with a new panel of ritualists and new perspectives delving into deeper and deeper topics concerning greater magic. So look forward to that next year. And I hope to have another great year full of uh, entertaining content for you, the listener. So thank you again for listening to the Greater Magic episode. And I would like to take this opportunity to thank a few people who helped with the creation of this episode. Reverend Bill M., Citizen Storm, Chris Sex, and Megas Gilmore for pointing me in the right direction. Hail Satan, Happy Halloween, and good night. <laughs>